A third of today's core job skills will be obsolete in the next couple of years. Machines that we cannot understand are doing a better job of modeling the world than we are in many instances. AI and the Internet of Things are having an increased impact on their workforce. That network is where knowledge lives. And so building those networks, I think, is absolutely key. Leaders need to demonstrate their commitment to doing social good. Your workforce is more adaptable than you think. Hi, I'm Ellen Bailey, Senior Learning Solutions Manager at Harvard Business Publishing. Hello, and I'm Dahlia Malocchia, Associate Director at Harvard Business Publishing. I'm really excited and looking forward to our conversation about Workforce of the Future and hearing from our experts. Elisa Friedman is the Senior Manager Editorial and Curation for Harvard Business Publishing's Education and Learning Product Development Group. During her 16-year tenure here at Harvard Business Publishing, Elisa has really applied her expertise in instruction design, editorial development, and content curation to really address a wide range of leadership solutions. With this vast experience, Lisa is the perfect person to share the latest research on the critical capabilities leaders need for now and the future. I'm really looking forward to hearing from Elisa about what the research shows, key themes that were uncovered, and really what this impact has on organizations. Welcome, Elisa. Thanks, Ellen. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, as part of your role at Harvard Business Publishing, you and your team did extensive research regarding leadership capabilities. Tell us a little bit more about this endeavor. Sure. The leadership capabilities are Harvard Business Publishing's point of view on the skills every leader needs to have to be successful today. The purpose we had in creating these started back in 2014 was to help us develop an aligned approach to key leadership topics across our entire portfolio. Excellent. And how did you put these capabilities together? In terms of our process, Roughly every 18 months, our editorial team does a comprehensive review of key sources across the literature. We look at everything from client competency models to research on what's keeping CEOs up at night. This time around, our extended team reviewed over 300 articles, white papers, and reports. We also take into consideration things we learn throughout our ongoing content development process. For example, every time we put together an offering, we identify new thought leadership, and we include the new ideas in these updates. And of course, we get input and great insights from great partners in the field, people like you, Alan and Dahlia, as well as our clients. So, Elisa, what trends did you uncover, and what's different from the past, let's say, 18 months? Well, Ellen, it's really amazing how quickly things change. Um, I'd like to start with the concept of digital transformation. This idea here is about how the mindset and skills that leaders have to have to transform their businesses in in our current digital era. Companies all over the world and across every industry are really finding it imperative to adapt to a digital environment. Uh, In fact, according to a recent Gartner report, 69% of executives felt that they had to become significantly more digital to just even to remain competitive. So organizations who really fail to jump on this digital bandwagon will suffer. Recent research also points to another uh, financial performance gap between those organizations that are led by what we call digital savvy pioneers and those that are more considered laggards. 
But but apparently there's time, actually. Organizations across the globe still seem to have a long way to go in terms of digital transformation. In fact, only 15% of the people who responded to Mercer's global talent survey that was conducted last year reported that they worked at a fully digital organization. Now I'd like to move on to a different trend. This one's a little bit frightening. Uh, it's all about the ever-growing talent gap. While it's tough to find great talent, even in some sectors today, research so shows that this is only going to get worse. And by 2030, the global talent shortage is projected to top 85 million. And due to that digital transformation that we just mentioned, the World Economic Forum has predicted that about a third of today's core job skills will be obsolete in the next couple of years. And I've got another piece of scary news. McKinsey reported that 62% of executives believe that they'll need to retrain or replace more than a quarter of their existing workforce between now and 2023. Oh, my goodness. Yikes. You know, that seems scary. But yet, on the other hand, when, when working with our clients, we're also seeing a bit of a trend where people are really wanting to kind of learn and skill up in this, this personalized learning and self-development um, have you seen any of of that in your research as well? Well, Ellen, that's exactly right. Um, there is some good news here. I was just reading an article in the current issue of the Harvard Business Review tellingly called, Your Workforce is More Adaptable Than You Think. And uh, as you might expect, the research, which was conducted actually by a team from Harvard Business School as well as Boston Consulting Group, suggests that today's workforce is more eager to be upskilled than their employers actually give them credit for. Alyssa, that's fascinating. The trends you uncovered are exactly what our clients and the audience would, would love to hear about, and uh, the, the research that you've done is, is clearly very robust. I wonder if there are any other trends that you've come across in addition to digital transformation and talent? Yes, Dahlia, I'd really like to share one more today, and that's about how values are now really driving organizations. Increasingly, we're seeing that organizations have to demonstrate commitment to their social values in a, in a more public way. And I, I think part of this has to do with this generation. Millennials are now the largest group in the U.S. workforce. And generally speaking, they're more vocal and more likely to take action when they see something they don't think is just right. So as a result, today organizations are more likely to take a stand on issues of, say, sustainability, LGBTQ issues, and other forms of discrimination. For example, just think about how Starbucks shuttered its stores worldwide for a whole day so that every employee could take part in racial bias training as a result of an incident in one of their stores. Or how Nike backed Kaepernick and incidentally sales climb. Increasingly, we're finding that businesses are no longer judged only for their financial importance, but they are being evaluated on the basis of their impact on society. The May-June issue of HBR actually speaks to this. It contains a feature called the Investor Revolution that describes how environmental, social, and governance factors, which are sometimes known as ESG, are now becoming a priority even for investors. The Nike and Starbucks are great examples that highlight just how important it is to be values-driven these days. So thank you for that, Elisa. I think that will really resonate with the audience. Uh, and just another question, how are those trends impacting leaders and, and I guess, in turn, organizations as well? Right. Well, what we're seeing is that new skills and capabilities uh, need to be prioritized now. So, for example, because of this digital transformation trend, leaders need to build what we call digital fluency. 
For example, leaders now need to really keep abreast of the latest technologies that affect their company's current business strategies and their operations, really. For example, a recent PwC survey respondents singled out things like big data and the cloud as the technologies that would most impact their organizations, even in the near term. But also things like AI and the Internet of Things are having an increased impact on their workforce. Likewise, leaders need to promote technology and data use across all their functional areas, not just technical ones as in the past. Um, a, a key idea here is that data science is actually for everyone. And relatedly, today's leaders need to use data and analytics to guide their decision-making. I recently read an article about the idea that leaders need to cultivate what's called a lab mindset, um, and it really spoke to me. It was this idea that you not only encourage experimentation, but you pose tough questions and draw on hard data to support or disprove those ideas. So the digital technology piece, you know, all of that makes perfect sense. I can see absolutely why there's um, a big focus on, on all of this. What about talent and values driven? Is there anything else you can share on that front with us, Elisa? Sure, absolutely, Dahlia. So with regard to the talent gap, there is this increasing need to accelerate development. Um, first of all, leaders really need to prioritize their development investments. Following from what I just said before, leaders need to invest in upskilling their workers to improve this concept of their digital fluency. Um, and most, behind, most organizations are actually kind of behind the eight ball on this one. Um, a recent Burson report showed that only 28% of organizations have what they call, would classify as either good or very good levels of proficiency in basic data literacy skills. And on a different note, leaders need to provide timely and continuous coaching and feedback, uh, and of course, of this across cultures. Uh, a workforce dominated by millennials demands this as sort of table stakes, right? Um, and there's complexity, though, because of the global nature of the workforce, right? Leaders need to be, become upskilled in the art of coaching virtually. They need to be able to also be well-versed in cultural differences because they'll be dealing with diverse team members. And finally, leaders need to promote a growth mindset. This is psychologist Carol Dweck's idea that everybody's abilities can be improved through a combination of self-awareness, hard work, and getting help from other people. Research shows that people who work in these organizations that embrace this idea of a, of a growth mindset feel more empowered and committed. So finally, regarding values different organizations, there is this increasing need to articulate this sort of a purpose that would inspire both uh, employee and customer loyalty and passion. What I mean by this, really, is that leaders need to take a proactive stance on issues important to employees, customers, as well as the whole community at large. To attract and retain millennial talent and customers, leaders need to demonstrate their commitment to doing social good. Similarly, leaders need to adopt diversity and inclusion as a full-on business strategy, not just a compliance program. Leaders need to actively try to remove barriers that prevent um, all kinds of people from different backgrounds and perspectives from contributing fully to their workplace. I'm a huge fan of growth mindset, so thank you for sharing that, Elisa. The trends you shared with us today are really interesting, and um, I was also hoping that you might talk a little bit more about some of the other capabilities in addition to what you mentioned earlier, so talent gaps and um, digital transformation, digital fluency, and uh, values-driven organizations. But are there any other capabilities that uh, need to be prioritized, or what should we be thinking of as we head into the future? 
Well, I could talk all day, but uh, today I'll just focus on shifts in three key areas, strategy, complexity, and innovation. So in terms of strategy, organizations are really moving away from that big annual strategic planning event concept towards something that we call strategic agility. What this means is that organizations don't follow a one-and-done, set-it-and-forget-it approach to strategy, but instead adopt a more nimble, test-and-learn approach where they continually adapt how they operate in response to changes in the environment. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. That's really in line with what we heard from Rashad at Coca-Cola about not, al- not only enabling their leaders and really helping them be more agile, but also with the experimentation piece in their marketing group as well. Yeah, and it's important to point out that this, this approach to strategy is not just by one person, a top-down idea, but it's, it flows um, because it's driven by leaders at all levels across the organization. So, relatedly, in terms of the complexity, that's really all about navigating chronic uncertainty that really is ever-present today. Leaders must do more and more to identify trends swiftly and respond to the changes in the environment in real time. I was just reading about an example of this in this month's HBR. Steelcase recently pulled together a team to track emerging trends and conduct real-time experiments to respond to them. What I really liked about this approach was that the team members had volunteered from all over the organization, and so they were asked to work on things that did not necessarily draw from their core functional expertise. So they were learning new skills at the same time as they were giving the organization a lens into future planning. This idea of having people work outside their comfort zones fits nicely with the final idea um, I want to speak of today and the idea leaders should keep in their sights, and that is tapping into employees' natural curiosity. Research by Harvard Business School's Francesca Gino, which is also featured in our most recent update of Harvard Management, or is really all about this. Here's a shocking statistic that she put together. While um, organizations say that they treasure inquisitive minds, seven out of ten workers report feeling discouraged in their efforts to explore at work or even ask questions on the job. So the most successful leaders today learn to acknowledge that innovation starts with the innate desire for individuals to learn more. So they learn how to practice techniques for sparking and supporting curiosity in the workplace. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you for joining us today. Great insights. Thank you. Now, we've all heard lots of things about the Internet and AI and how they're not only changing the future, but they're also changing our ideas about how the future arises from the present. And in his new book, which is called Everyday Chaos, David Weinberger points to accepted ways which work on the internet that almost undo our old assumptions about how the future works. Preparing, anticipating for the future, and almost knowing what your clients and customers want is no longer a thing today. It's actually less about that and more to do with working together with your clients and customers to find solutions, whether that's a form of crowdsourcing or an MVP, minimum viable product, That really depends on what your offerings are. So we'll hear more from David in this next section. We are joined by David Weinberger from the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard. He's the author of the new Harvard Business Publishing book, Everyday Chaos. So welcome, David. And we'd like to know what really led you to write this book. Oh, I've been, in one way or another, I've been working on it. Um, forever. I actually went to 
uh, to grad school in philosophy because primarily because I was interested in the question of um, what possibility means. And this book is in many ways about what the future means, how the future works, which is just one way you can talk about possibility. I also spent many years writing about and, and working in internet technology, which um, I think changes our ideas about how the future works and uh, what the best way of approaching it is. So, David, this is really interesting. And we're, we're talking here about preparing for the future. But the argument you're putting forward in your book here is in some ways not about doing that anymore. Do you agree? Well, the book su suggests that we are in the past, say, 20 years in particular, we've taken up some new ways of addressing the future. We are always going to have to anticipate and prepare for the future. That's been the basic strategy. I mean, arguably for 500,000 years, as old as human artifacts. We've anticipated what's going to happen, and we've you know, created the arrows or the spears and uh, up until today. And yes, we're going to keep on doing that. But something else is happening at the same time, which I think is changing our ideas about how the future works. So you can see this in, in a number of things on, on the net where people have adopted these strategies simply because they work, but the implications are, I think, large for how we think about the future. So I'm going to go back slightly pre-net, if that's okay, so like to 1908. And if you're Henry Ford, you are launching the Model T, which is going to go on to sell 15 million <laughs> uh, instances. Copies? What do we call them? These days we call them copies, I guess. Cars. We call them cars. 15 million cars by the time it ended its run in, in, in 19 years later without making any visible changes uh, to the car itself. Because Ford anticipated what his users were going to want. He built it to meet those needs. It, it was going to be running on mud tracks primarily at that point, so it needed to be high up off the ground. And the users didn't know how to drive a car, uh, so it had to be really simple. The UI had to be really simple, and he, he really nailed it. So that's a you know, great example of anticipating and preparing and succeeding. Very standard way of doing things. On the net, we see all of these different ways of doing things that I think we don't pay a lot of attention to in this regard, but are really spectacularly different. For example, on the net, people frequently will launch a new product by launching a minimum viable product. And this is a, a product that you have customers pay for, but it's the least that they want. It's the one thing that you know that they want. If it's Dropbox, you launch with one key feature, which is you can use your files anywhere. And that, that's great. But rather than trying to anticipate what users will do with it, you launch the minimum and see what they are going to do with it, what they actually want, what problems they run into, what ideas they have for adding on. And so minimum viable product, very common way of launching, and it's a way of holding back from anticipating. Um, likewise, oh, you know, open platforms, um, products that provide uh, a way for developers anywhere in the world to use some of the services and maybe some of the data, gets, that can get a little dicey, but that the company making the product uses internally, but make them available externally, often without requiring any form of permission, so that the world of people who have specialized needs or niche needs or want to integrate this product into some other piece of their workflow, they can do that um, easily. And that's a way of multiplying the value of, of the product. And so that's become quite common with some very, very large and successful companies. Slack is, as most people know, I think, is a messaging uh, company, has messaging software that's used by uh, work teams in some very large corporations. 
they opened up one of these open platforms and they also they also created an $80 million venture fund to encourage people to be building stuff on top of this platform. This is a way of Slack refusing or holding back from anticipating what their users are going to need and allowing users and developers representing those users to create what they've thought of. This is succeeding by refusing to anticipate and refusing to prepare. Do this for a while and you're successful at it and becomes a common thing on the net in many different forms. Those are just two. Your idea of how the future works begins to change. Thank you for that, David. Yeah, Slack example is, is particularly very, very interesting. Um, and in your book, you talk a lot about machine learning as, as another really good example of how we currently think about the future, but also how we try to adapt to it. Could you give us some, some examples of what you mean? So if the internet has gotten us used to the idea that we can succeed by holding back from anticipation and as a routine thing, and that we can succeed by making pieces that are interoperable, that is, that our stuff can be used by other people in ways that we haven't thought of, pieces sort of snap together in unexpected ways, then I think machine learning is giving us a, a way of understanding why this works, why the future works in the way that it does. Machine learning, as many people uh, at this point know, I think, but just in case, machine learning is a big step in computing because traditional computing, the developer comes up with a a model of how the domain works. And if you're in business, it's like a spreadsheet. You know what the major influences are on your business and you know how they interrelate. And that's, you know, that's basically what a programmer decides. Machine learning, you don't give it a model. You don't tell it how pieces connect. You just give it the data. And it figures out statistically through advanced math and stuff like that, this it can be a gigantic, overwhelmingly large network of relationships among different pieces of data, each probabilistically connected to another, often connected to thousands or millions of other pieces as well. So you have this gigantic model that doesn't resolve, doesn't always resolve into easily understandable or even understandable frameworks for humans to grasp onto what's what's happening. And yet these models often are better at predicting than humans are. And so this tells us, I think, we're getting used to this idea. It's a frightening idea, or at least it's a challenging idea, that machines that we cannot understand are doing a better job of modeling the world than we are in many instances. But it provides the explanation, so to speak, of why the future is changing, how we understand the future is, is changing. Because rather than seeing the future as being governed by a relative handful of general principles and rules that humans can understand and model, we're now seeing through machine learning that it is actually determined by a universe of pieces all interacting at the same time in small and large ways that are beyond, often beyond our, our capabilities. That is a very big change in how we think the world works. And I think that affects some really important ways that we operate in the world. So as we think about the future and the impact on us, you know, one of the first points that you make is that as we think about decision making and strategy, we need to think about that differently. Do you mind expanding a bit on that? Well, we're, we're already seeing a shift in how we think about strategy, especially in business. Business strategy is a very recent idea. It's measured in decades, not really even in centuries. And it's already beginning to shift because we live in a time in which Things change so rapidly, and a very small thing can come out of nowhere and set off a chain of events that changes 
um, changes everything. Strategy, the idea of strategy assumes a future that is stable enough and operates according to rules and principles and trends and influences that humans can meaningfully track. And in many instances, that's still the case, of course. But I think we are being trained by the internet and by machine learning that those, those are the exceptions rather than the rule. The rule is everyday chaos, if I may plug my own book here. Um, so uh, our responses, the types of strategies that we're, I, I think we're heading towards, and I, I'm not alone in this, I'm thinking that we're heading towards uh, minimum viable strategies as a way of proceeding. Um, in fact, you know, the first person to distinguish strategy from tactics, so I think we can say the person who really made strategy into its own thing was Plato. It was 2,500 years ago, except that when Plato did it, what we think of the large-scale movements and, and the logistics he calls tactics. And for strategy, the very first thing he compares it to is to a musician improvising. And it's not usually how we think about strategy, but I think it's actually a really apt way of thinking about it, given where we are, our technology is, is moving us. Yeah, that's a great point. And as we continue to then think about explanations and the whole concept of explanations in general, share more about your perspective on that as well. Well, this is another thing that I think is very disturbing to us that we are getting from both machine learning and the internet. Because we've had this idea for a long, long time uh, that the world is explainable to humans. We were created to be the creatures that can understand the world. And explanations is sort of a description of how the world works. And yeah, sort of, kind of, but that's not really how we use them or what they are, I would say. So an explanation, if you're, if you had a flat tire on some back road that you took because you got lost or whatever, and you swerved to miss a bunny and you ran over a nail, why did you get a flat tire? You'll say, uh, perfectly reasonably, oh, it was the nail. That's the explanation. And that's, that's fine. That's right. But in order for that nail to have given you a flat tire, you had to get lost, get on the back road, swerve to miss the bunny. Gravity had to be in effect. The relationship between metal and rubber had to be what it is. Sharp points have to penetrate better than dull ones. The space aliens who are hanging over the earth have to have failed to vacuum up all of the iron because they're rust-eating life forms, all those things had to happen in order for the nail to be the explanation. The nail is a good explanation because explanations are tools. They're not states of the world. And an explanation picks out the one thing. You pick out one thing as the explanation. The thing you pick out is the thing you can change. You can pull the nail out of the tire. You can't change gravity or the way the relationship of rubber and, and metal. Explanations are tools. They're really, really useful. Um, we are heading into a period in which, at least in some cases, and there's controversy over how many and how inevitable, but at least in some cases, the machine learning is so complex, the models are so complex that we can't understand them. We are already in an age where we know on the, on the internet, we have no idea what to expect. We are in a constant and occasionally exhausting <laughs> uh, state of surprise. Explanations are really useful, but they are only tools, and they are tools that hide as much as they reveal. They reveal the nail. They hide everything else that got you to that tire, uh, that flat tire. These concepts are fascinating. And as we continue to work with learning and development professionals in different client organizations, in terms of how they prepare their leaders for the future, you know, what advice or what can they take away from your research and your perspectives? Well, I think uh, there's a sense of humility that these technologies 
at best should be bestowing on us a sense that we are our brains are very small and the world is very very big and i think that suggests two things the first is that we need to be realistic which means humble about what we can know and we now have tools that enable us to know more without having to remember everything and those that's fantastic that's like you know it's like having a libraries amplifying human human knowledge but it should also make clear the especially the complexity of how things work which is now manifest before us should make clear that we are very limited in our capabilities and thus i think the second point which is we need each other um, we no longer have the luxury of thinking what i think has always been a mistake that knowledge is something that pertains to an individual it's not it pertains to communities it pertains to networks and the smartest people around these days i think are people who have the privilege and luck of being embedded in rich communities that loose edge they extend ultimately all the way out to the edge of the internet but the people who are supportive of one another who have various types of expertise that can be called upon who are curious who are pulling in information from the infinitude of information available to us now and if you want to know where knowledge lives i would at this point i would say not in individuals not in books it it lives in the network a network of people who are engaged with one another respecting each other's differences and learning from one another's differences and cherishing one another's differences that network is where knowledge lives and so building those networks i think is absolutely key Thank you, David. Those are such insightful takeaways. And while the notion of humility will definitely resonate with our audience, uh, I want to emphasize your last point. What you said there mirrors exactly what we're hearing from our clients. That is the way their employees are learning. Increasingly, they're learning in a social way. So they're learning through their networks, through the internet, through social communities. This is how learning is happening today. And this is, in some ways, one of the biggest opportunities for LND, but also one of the biggest challenges for them as well. On that note, we want to thank you very much for, for coming today and for sharing such wonderful insights with us. Oh, thank you so much. 